I needed that song this morning, and I trust several of you did as well, many of you, most of you maybe. The words of a song can be uh, so transformative, and the Lord speaks to us in different ways through music than even he does through his word, and especially wor- uh, words in songs or lyrics that are inspired by his word go go even deeper. I I can't sing that song and get to that bridge. There's no um, mountain you won't climb up. You know, there's no wall you won't kick. Uh, there's no uh, wall you won't kick down or lie you won't tear down. Um, without having an image in my mind, and and because I know we've got a, a mixed audience, I'll have to have. I have to ask you to read between the lines a little bit, but I always think of the ministries like the International Justice Mission. You might be familiar with what they do, but they are often in the most seedy places of the world, rescuing those that have been victimized by the sin of of mankind. And I picture the kicking of the... You know, the kicking of the walls down and the rescuing that we need and how that is offensive to us and it's terrible for us to see in mankind. But we are those people that our sin has so alienated us from the holiness of God that Jesus himself kicked down every wall to get to us, to rescue us, to love us, to welcome us into his family. And so... um you know, I needed to hear that this morning, and I needed to sing it all with you, and so I'm just so glad to be able to be in God's house this morning. And for those of you that, that can't be here uh, this morning, we miss you, we're praying for you, and um, we know that uh, you are uh, plotting the course that the Lord's laid out for you in this time as well, and so um, as Pastor Gary, I think, so so encouragingly said in his announcements, we are one body in Christ. Um, despite our differences, and I've encountered many over the last couple of weeks, and I actually love it because I've been saying um, that I, I like it when God's people are taking church seriously. And so because people are taking church seriously, we have a lot of different opinions about the way things should be done and handled, and that's all great. It's tough sometimes, it's uncomfortable, but it's worth the effort, it's worth the engagement. As we wrestle together through these times, remembering that our brothers and sisters in Christ are not our enemy and uh, and standing up for the glory of God. None of that is in my notes this morning. <laughs> so I got to get moving because we've got little kids in the building and I don't want to tax the parents. So let's get into this as best we can. But let's just uh, start with a word of prayer. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for your word. I thank you, Lord, for giving me the privilege and the opportunity to share it this morning. Um, God, these are difficult times. These are uh, tumultuous seasons that we live in, God, but your word is clear. Your word in its principles is, uh, is so trustworthy and so centering for our being, for our mind that, uh, Lord, we must engage in the difficult, um, task of sorting out those principles and adhering to them, trusting you, Lord, to make sense of the circumstances that we're in. So, Lord, give us um, your words this morning. Give us hearts to receive it. Give us minds to contemplate it, memories to lock it in, all of the things, Lord, that we need in our limited capacity. So thank you, Lord, for calling us together and using your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
Me and all my friends were all misunderstood. They say we stand for nothing and there's no way we ever could. Now we see everything that's going wrong with the world and those who lead it. We just feel like we don't have the means to rise above and beat it. So we keep waiting, waiting for the world to change. Um, I could have sung that for you, but it wouldn't have helped your memory of who did that song. It wouldn't have worked so well. But John Mayer penned those words over a decade or so ago. I forget how old the song is, Waiting on the World to Change. But it's it's kind of this angst of, you know, the, the times, you know, we want to see something happen, but it's just too big for us. What in the world could we do about it anyway? So we'll keep waiting for things to change. It's fairly hopeless. What we've been talking about in First Peter is an anchored hope, a living hope, one that, that comes alive and one that is trustworthy. And an anchored hope is more than the arrival of altered circumstances or even our positive feelings about the negative circumstances that we might be in. We, we, we're too easily defining hope based on how it makes us feel. If I don't feel positive, I must not have any hope. But but real hope, living hope, anchored hope, is a deep-seated trust that something is going to make sense eventually. There is a purpose to what I'm going through, and it will be revealed to me at the right time. I don't need to manufacture my reason for life. I don't need to manufacture my feelings. I don't need to just take it square on and, and quote-unquote, fingers crossed, hope for the best. Peter in verse 13, which is the introduction to our text this morning, in the second part of that verse, he gives us our theme for the morning. He says to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, not all the grace that you have right now, but the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation or the appearing of Jesus Christ. Keep in mind that Peter has told us right out of the gate that he's writing to those that are spread out, the, the, the ones who are, are populating a region who feel as though they don't have an anchored, uh, an anchored um, uh, citizenship, uh, a spiritual home. We've kind of felt that way as well. We're, dis, uh, uh, we're dislocated sometimes from our, our body of believers, from the church that we know of as faith. And so Peter is writing to exiles whose hope is starting to wane. They're starting to feel like this has gone on long enough. Can I get a witness? Imagine if Peter's message was just keep your fingers crossed, just hang in. And I promise you, it's all going to be fine, real, real soon. Everyone's going to make the decisions that you want them to make. Your life's going to get easier. It's all going to break your way. You just keep your fingers crossed. Imagine how hopeless that would be because we're looking at this now 2,000 years later saying their hope wouldn't have arrived anytime soon. The persecution that was building under Nero was right at their doorstep. And we know that history tells us that it happened. They had to weather it. They, they went through it. Many lost their lives in some of the most ugly, horrific, brutal ways. So if Peter had just said, keep a positive attitude and you won't have to go through any of that, he would have been lying to them. Instead, he's like a sailor who's climbed up the perch and he's he's looking out and he says, I can see the land. It is there. It's coming. I know it doesn't feel like we're getting closer, but I can see it day by day. The land is getting just a little bit bigger. And he's shouting this down to those on deck. 
And he's switching for us as we get into verse 13. He's starting to switch his, his tone. He was setting the stage. He was talking to them about their position as elect exiles. And he was, he was also addressing the history of all that's arrived at their doorstep from the prophets to the enormous responsibility they have to maintain the message that the, the current, um, preachers were, were offering and delivering the, the gospel message to them. And then remember he said to us last week that there's this great crowd, these angels are watching and everyone's kind of cheering us on, just so curious, getting the popcorn. How's this going to play out? So Peter was setting the stage in his introduction. Now he's, he's moving to this imperative um, uh, mindset where he's saying, prepare, set your hope, be holy. He is calling them to do the right things right now in anticipation of the land coming into view. Start cleaning up the deck. Don't, don't put too much emphasis on repairing that ship. It wasn't meant to, to, to be something we live on forever. It's, it's going to hold on, but just make sure we maintain it. Make sure that we're keeping a good eye on it and stuff. But the land is getting closer. We won't have to rely on this old floating vessel anymore. He's calling them to do the right things in the moment, but never forgetting the fact that this is all a temporary exercise. It'd be like someone who's homeless, who's living under a bridge and someone saying, hey, by the way, you know how everyone's got that rich uncle they don't know about? I don't know how that story ever develops. Does anybody have that rich uncle that they don't know about? I know what you're saying. How would I know? So the homeless man gets word that he's going to get a check in a few days. It's going to be more money than he's ever seen in his life. Now, all of a sudden, the dwelling under the bridge for the next few days isn't so bad. He can endure it. He can make it work. Because it's not his future. The grace that you and I have received, and we have received a lot, have we not? We've received the salvation, the forgiveness of our sins that's been promised to us from the cross of Calvary. We've received a restoring in many of our relationships because now we've humbled ourselves. We're going to people with that same grace that we've been shown. And so we're starting to repair our relationships on earth. We've started to have some of our our fortunes restored or whatever form God's grace has shown up in your life, helping you perhaps get through addiction and all these different things. And so we have received so much grace in the here and now, more than we deserve, more than we can expect. And yet it's been given to us. And yet even with all of that grace, Peter says, that's not all of it, you know. When Jesus arrives, when he appears and you say, like we said a couple weeks ago, He's real. I mean, I know I said I believed in him and I trust and I prayed and I did all this. But the experience of the fact that he's right here before me, I, I got to be honest, I didn't really know. And at his appearing, his grace of all of that being true, all of it being worth it, all of the struggle, all of the pain and everything. And now he's saying, enter into your reward, into your rest. And that's when that full weight of that grace will be experienced. Our anchored or our lasting hope requires two extremely basic fundamental ingredients. Every preacher who's handled and wrestled the word of God pretty much boils down their instruction to these two things, knowledge and action. You got to know some things and then you got to do some things. You see, it's pretty brilliant stuff, right? See what takes me about 15, 20 hours to come up with this? What is Peter calling us to know? 
Well, he's told us all along from the beginning of the letter, even up to our text beginning in verse 13, that simply says this. Therefore, based on the identity that we've established, that you are elect exiles, based on the history that we've said that has been transferred to you and all that's been placed and just laid in your lap, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You and I need to know whose we are. It's not as easy as we would think it would be. I, we don't walk around all day long saying, I'm a child of the king. In all of its implications, we have to fight to get our minds back there. We have to remember that we don't belong to the circumstances that we see around us. So Peter is calling us. He's shouting from the perch. Don't forget whose you are. Don't forget the promise that this ship isn't going to last forever. It is taking you to your real destination. That's why he started off by saying, you are elect of God. You are chosen. You are secure in him. Even though you are exiles, even though you're wandering, even though you're floating around on tossy waters, you are elect. In verse 14, he's going to use language for us. He's going to say, as obedient children. Verse 17, he's going to say, those of you that call on him as father. So if we're elect in him, we belong to him and he is dad. He is father. In verse 18, we are ransomed slaves. And we are ransomed in verse 19 with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You see, all of these things start to paint a picture for us of who we belong to and how we got there. This is what Peter is aiming for. His audience and any audience in the first century churches would have been made up of several different types of people. We would have had slaves who were perhaps made slaves through the war, uh, some war not going in their favor. And so they were taken over or maybe they had their own form of bankruptcy or debts that they needed to pay off. So they'd have to maybe sell themselves into slavery or somebody else would take some kind of um, unfair ownership of them and sell them. Sometimes they were just born into that life. So any first century church would have a mixture of slaves, those who are still in it and stuck in it, if you will. And those who are free men who have never had a taste of it, never been threatened by it or anything. They're just there and they're just living their free lives. Or there'd be those who are freed men. A former slave who's been set free. They could do that by earning their own extra money on the side. Don't think of slavery in the same sense that we would necessarily. Like there was never any free time, never an opportunity to go to your master and say, hey, could I do some more for extra credit? I'd like to work my way out of here. And sometimes those arrangements would be made. Yes, I know this is what I've given you for a job description. But if you do this, I'll start, I'll start chipping away on your um, responsibility to me and we'll set you free early. So a slave could finagle that, work that out, but so often it would seem like such a difficult thing to do. We know from the scriptures that our slavery, that we've been enslaved and in bondage to sin, and there was no way for us to earn that extra credit. There's no way for us to pay that price. So therefore, our text tells us that it required the precious blood of God's own son to set us free. You and I need to remember whose we are. And conversely, I think we should say, then we also need to know whose we no longer are. What are we saying? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 
verses two and three. You once walked or you once lived following the course of this world. That is a, a system, the ways of culture and society that, that oppose all the things that the Lord cares about, all the things that the Lord has instilled. There's a system out there that marches to the beat of its own drum and it makes it up all the time. I don't like this rhythm anymore. I'm going to change it. And it starts adjusting everything on the fly. And the world is kind of being led around by its own nose, just not not sure how to settle on any certain principles. And this whole mechanism moves in opposition to the salvation of the Lord. And so Paul is telling us, you once were caught up in that, following the course, following the pattern of this world. Enemy number one. That's who we used to belong to. We also used to belong to enemy number two. He says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is, of course, Satan himself. And the devil is the leader of all that opposes God. That's why the devil and the world work so hand in hand, because they want to be led away from him. And he says, well, I've got your marching orders right here. And he can just drag them around and move them around. Enemy number two. Now we see enemy number three in verse three of Ephesians two. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our own flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our fallen nature, not so much our our skin and our bones and things, but our fallen nature that is contained within those things is what Peter is warning us that this was a passion of our former ignorance. These things dragged us into all sorts of stuff. And and if you were to replay your life and say, this is how I used to be, most of us would just be hiding our head in shame about who we used to be when we were following these passions of our former ignorance. This is what the flesh produces. The flesh also produces what Peter says in verse 18 is the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So we no longer belong to the world and its system, the flesh, the former passions of our our lusts and our ignorance, and we no longer belong to Satan himself. So it's important as far as Peter is concerned for us to know who we really are, what our identity is. And somehow, some way that's going to bear us being able to maintain the ship that we're floating on, awaiting the promise, the arrival on the shore that is getting closer and closer. So he says, know your identity. So that's where our mind comes in. Secondly, I think he would say to us, if you know what your identity is, then why not live by it? Why not live out who you claim to be? The word believer shows up in our text. I apologize. I'm kind of bouncing around a bit through our text. If you happen to have your scriptures in your lap, it'll help you more. But I know a lot of us uh, are looking at the things on the screen. So be patient with Kelly because I'm sending her all over the place. Uh, and Fran, for that matter, as we're putting them on the other screens and things. But we'll be bouncing in and out of verses using phrases here and there. It's not to manipulate the text. It's just the way that this is flowing out. We're going to be jumping around. So what are the characteristics of a believer? When when Peter says to live like a believer or to live in your identity, 
What does that mean? And fortunately, he gives us several words that are kind of peppered all throughout our text to let us know. The first thing he says that we need to be preparing ourselves. Now, the only sport I really picked up was um, basketball. It's the only one I kind of did with any sort of skill. I tried other ones and it was a, a failed disaster. I never had the physique for football. And the very first play the coach put me in proved that as I was leveled and I had to go lay on the sidelines. I mean, I got two seconds in on this kid's league and I was out. So I was like, maybe basketball is a little bit safer. And so throughout high school, um, learned a lot about the game and just fell in love with it and things. And one thing that I figured for myself, because I wasn't going to be the dominant scorer on the team, is I needed to carve my my value to the team out of the defensive end. Defense just made sense to me. It kind of it, it excited me. I, I got it. And so I, I wanted to contribute to my team uh, in that particular way. And And so if you're not familiar with the game... I'll take a couple minutes, I'll try not to geek out too much, but I'll take a couple minutes just to talk about defensive posturing a little bit. You know, when you're dealing with somebody who's a, a smaller guy, what they call in basketball, a guard, and he's kind of fast with his dribble and stuff, you need to have yourself prepared in your stance. You have to be kind of bit on your toes. If you're on your heels, he's going to get around you. If you're on your toes, you might be able to move a little bit faster to, uh, to stay in front of him. And so your position is always a little bit of a squatted kind of thing. You're always doing this and you're ready to follow wherever they go. And that's for the guys that are playing offense around the outside. So you're ready to move. We would always do this kind of thing instinctively. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't something we had to think much about, but you're always just kind of getting your shorts off your knees when you're bending over. Because even though all shorts were flexible and it probably didn't make that much difference, it just felt like a hindrance so you'd lift them up just to get them off your kneecaps. And, uh, and, and one thing that's going on here in the language of preparing your mind is the garments that they would wear would, would be great for daily use, but if they needed to be flexible, if they needed to move, they had to hike things up, tuck things into a belt and get all their garments ready so that they could move more freely. And as I was seeing this, I was thinking, this is exactly what we used to have to do in basketball. We would just get down there and, and pull up so that we could move. Now, if you're one of the bigger guys, what we'd call a post player, or nowadays they call the big man or something like that, if you're down low near the basket because of your height, if I go to play defense on him and I'm down here, he's just going to take the ball and do this the whole time, just shoot over me. Knowing who my opponent is changes my stance. So preparing my mind or adjusting my stance takes a different form based on who I'm playing against. Wasn't that fascinating? Don't you want to go watch basketball now, now that you understand the, some of the fundamentals of defensive strategy? Now you know why I don't coach a team. They'd be like, yeah, we all get that. What's next? Teach us some technique. But this is what Peter is saying to us in verse 13. In other words, if I'm going up against one of my enemies, who's the world, I have to grow in some savvy about how I engage the world. Can I get near the philosophy of the world, the whole system and mechanism of the world without being overtaken by it? So I engage one enemy slightly different than another. If I'm going up against my own flesh, the scripture says that I must crucify it. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting it to death. I'm remembering the fact that all of its desires, all of its former passions have no power over me. I do not need to yield to what I feel like I need to do. And if I'm engaging the devil, what does the scripture say? Resist him. 
Resist him and he'll flee from you. So my stance changes and in the whole time I'm trying to make sure that my garments are prepared, that I'm unrestricted so that I can move uh, quickly to adjust to the offense that my enemies are so often putting up against me. This is why Peter is calling us to take action. He's calling us to live by our identity because if we just simply receive all the benefits that come with being a grace-filled person, someone who's been shown such amazing forgiveness and, and privilege, if I don't do anything with it, you and I all know that, that privilege minus responsibility will equal squander. That we won't treat well that which has been given to us and we will eventually lose it all. So Peter is saying, take action with what you've been given so that you're not squandering the grace that's been shown to you. And he calls us to do it in a sober-minded fashion, preparing our minds. This being sober-minded has so much more to do with exercising sound judgment and being steady. I mentioned to you that in a defensive position, you have to be on your toes so that you can move. There's a steadiness to shifting your weight in just the right way. If you're on your heels, you get blown uh, blown backwards. And now all the kids, the biggest thing in basketball moves is when they say you quote unquote broke their ankles because some fast dribbler will go like this and the guy trying to play defense falls right on his back. And then it goes viral and the whole world sees this great player just got his ankles broke. Ha ha ha. Because it looks silly to be overtaken by a faster offense. And so Peter's warning us to be sober minded. And this is a challenge today for us to remain uh, to, to maintain a healthy mindset for us to see things through sobriety for us to exercise sound judgment we are in cor- uh, we are of course um, faced with what seems like an intellectual drought around us on all fronts we have lost the ability to see multiple sides of an argument and navigate through that we're so quick to give in to an emotional battle where I, I, I've been counseling this for a long time that God's people need to not be a feeling-oriented people, but a principle-oriented people. And oriented just means what leads you first, what's your first, what's your, what are you going to give into based on your first reaction? If my feelings are driving everything I'm about to do, I'm going to get myself in trouble. If the principles of what's true, what's right, where the promise of safety, security, and blessing is, if those are the things that are leading me, I'll be living on principle and my life will go well and better. But it's extremely difficult for people in our day and age, as it has been for so long, to battle our emotions. And and the mind that God gave us, the design of it was never to be in direct opposition to feeling as though they don't count. It's not mind good, thinking good, feeling bad. Don't feel anything. That's not what that is. Really what it is, is the mind was never designed to directly oppose our feelings, but to keep them in check. The mind is the governor over our feelings, and they are meant to beautifully blend in our lives. So we feel the things that are appropriate. We have joy when we need to. We feel sadness when we need to. But the mind, in its adherence to principles given to us by the Lord, commands those feelings. Please trust me when I say your feelings will obey your thinking if you allow them to. And being sober minded today is perhaps one of our 
our chiefest deficiencies. And so I would just give all of us a few quick principles to keep in mind. If I said I wanted to exercise better judgment, I want to be steadier in my defense against my enemies, how do I go about doing that? First, I would say you have to start with trusting in God's sovereignty. Those that walk or live consistently, understanding that all things pass through the authority of the Lord, that nothing gets by him, that all the things that we experience, he is allowed to pass. When you walk in that security and in that safety, you start walking in greater peace, trusting God's secure sovereignty. Secondly, I would say, don't trust your first response. What you want to say and do right out of the gate, keep that in check. It may be the right thing. Maybe you've practiced the right thing over and over. And so your first response, but don't trust it. For the most part, our flesh wants to get out in front of the Lord's principles in our lives. How do I know this? Because Jeremiah seventeen nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. The last tip, and there's so much more we could say about being sober-minded, is I would say don't outpace God's plan. So many of us have taken to the cause that I've got to speak up for God if I don't, nobody will. I, I understand that urgency to a point, but please, let's understand if we if we grasp principle number one, that God is sovereign, his plan will get taken care of with or without us. The, the blessing and the benefit comes when we desire to be a part of his plan. If I fail to step forward, if I don't make myself available, he says, well, I'm moving on. My, I still have a plan to carry out. Can you imagine if all of God's plans for mankind hinged, hinged on someone like me? That if I didn't do it, then all of a sudden it all falls and fails. Instead, because I trust he has a plan, I want to be a part of it. I'd say it like this. I would say, don't just work for God, work with him. So Peter gives us a lot of descriptions. He says we need to be prepared. We need to be sober-minded. He's also saying to us in verse 13 that we need to be hopeful when he said to set your hope fully on the grace that's coming. That we need to be obedient. And he's drawing this word in its kind of Semitic form. It's it's a word that says it's obedience that comes from, from who you are naturally, not just who you're pretending to be. That, that our obedience is more about the fact that, I don't know, I just want to surrender to the Lord. I just want to submit to him. It's not just an act. In verse 17, he says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially, in other words, he's such a good dad, he doesn't have favorites. He hands it all out evenly according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. Well, Peter must not have meant that. These are hopeless, disheartened people who are struggling to, to see the land and they're listening to Peter's voice as he's shouting out over the perch. You better freak out down there. He can't mean that. I really believe that we need to stop explaining away fear. And coming up with a lot of different ways in the original language to talk about it's just awe and wonder. It is those things. But we've somehow forgotten that good parenting, which God is the ultimate perfect parent, 
It instills a healthy fear in children, not some kind of erratic, um, uh, uh, unsure when to breathe, when to move, this kind of panic. I don't, I don't know what I could do. That's not the kind of fear that good parenting produces. But instead, it's a fear of consequences, not some ultimate condemnation. We know the scripture says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it's this fear of consequences that I respect the borders. I respect the danger that lays on the other side of the of the of the uh, of the railing or something along those lines. That's in our immaturity. Kids need those kinds of uh, structures all the times. Kids need to fear the consequences of touching the light socket. We know. But as our maturity grows, what we fear more is breaking God's heart and misrepresenting his love for us and how he loves the world. In other words, the fear that Peter might be talking about here is asking ourselves the question, am I starting to care about what he might do to me or am I starting to fear more what I might do to him? Meyer, a theologian, puts it like this. He says, there's no fear like that which love begets. Peter continues in his description and says that we are to be faithful, verse 21, so that your faith and hope are in God. He says, we're not to be conformed, which is a kind of a, a fashioning after that pattern we talked about in the world. He tells us in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And Paul strengthens this for us in Romans 12 too. And he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's okay for us to study. It's in fact necessary for us to study the mold and the patterns of the thoughts, the actions and the value system of all of what's going on outside our walls. And we need to learn to defend against them. We need to uh, call those that are stuck in it out of that. And instead of just running and hiding from them, ooh, world, yucky, gross, I don't want to get any on me. Instead, we need to learn how to engage, but not be conformed by. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I'll only say this about ignorance for time, but how many of us have said, I was such an idiot when I was younger. When I was a a young adult or a kid or something, I had all these thoughts that I just thought were spot on and my freedom was there and all these kinds of things. I look back and what was I thinking? It doesn't mean that those that are of that age now are dumb. It just means who you will become. You'll look back and say, man, did I have a lot to learn? Did I have a lot of growth to go through? Back to first Peter in verses 15 and 16. He says, but he who, as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Peter loves the word conduct. It's going to be all throughout his letter, how we live, the manner of our lifestyle. And he's saying that that life needs to be holy. Why? Verse 16, he's quoting the Old Testament. Since it's written, you should be holy for I am holy. 
Holiness is a confusing word in our time. We think of robes and, and isolation and don't get any spots or stains of the world on you. But really what's going on here in this word, uh, word, word holiness is this encompassing distinction that, that we are unique. We are set apart. Why are we? Because we are elect of God. We are children of God. We are bought with the precious blood of Christ. So therefore, because we belong to him in his family and he is separate, he he is unique. He is unlike any other God. So therefore, we must be holy as well. Peter is going to call us over and over and over to holiness in this letter. He's dealing with it right now in our text in the sense of sanctification or our, our salvation, kind of you know cleaning itself up and becoming more like Christ. But eventually, as he's going to move on in the next section to a sincere love for others inside and outside the church, that's going to be a distinguishing mark of our holiness. Chapter 2 and 3, he's going to tell us that holiness even results in the submission to unjust leaders. Chapters 3 and 4, that our holiness is going to be demonstrated in a willingness to suffer. And to finish out the letter, he's going to say that God's people will demonstrate their distinction, their uniqueness, their separation in how we serve God's new family, his other children. So much of what we see in holiness has to be wrapped up in our understanding of being in God's family because it's kind of like when you have your own family identity and you just say, like in my context, if we said something, well, that's just what the smalls do. It not, isn't even necessarily saying what we do is better than somebody else. It's just our own distinguishing mark, our own distinguishing feature, our own understanding of the way life works or the rhythms in which we kind of interact with one another, that there's an identity that comes with having our name. And you all can say the same thing, especially if you were to think about it and then transfer that over to the Lord's uh, family and say, we as Christians, this is how we do this. Verses 17 and 19, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Why? Because that's what we do in this family. We operate with a healthy sense and an understanding of the consequences. But more than that, we operate in a way that wants to honor our dad. That's what we do in our family. We don't want to offend him or misrepresent him to those that he loves. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold. In other words, your ransom didn't come with even the best things you and I can think of. Those things perish. They die. Verse 19, we were freed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What does it mean to be, belong to the family of God? What does it mean to have our identity in being in his family? It means that the value of our freedom, our redemption, is clearly seen in how much he was willing to spend on it. It was the precious blood of his son. And yet we have a, a problem understanding what we mean to the Lord. Because of our over-psychologized um, life and, and mindset here in our culture where like if I don't have affirmation every single second, they must not care about me, that we've lost sight of the fact that God would be willing to spend the most expensive, precious thing in his arsenal to free you. 
And when did he do it? When we begged, when we pleaded, he ignored us, he put it off as long as he could? No. Verse 20 says, he, being Christ, the precious blood that redeemed us, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. In other words, God planned your rescue before time began. Before you had even a chance to beg for it, God planned the rescue of those that would call him father. Does that give us a clue as to how much he loves us? Peter, as we said, is shouting from the perch. Hang on. Stay busy, stay diligent. I can see land, it's coming closer. Unfortunately, there's several different audiences down on that deck. There are those that are saying, that's what I needed to hear, Peter. I, I had to believe that this isn't all there is. It doesn't feel like there's all this all there is. I have some meaning, I have some purpose, I'm busy and everything, but it, it just seems incomplete. So Peter, keep shouting down because it kind of gives me fuel for my fire. Keep telling me the land is getting bigger. I'm going to keep moving forward. There are those that have that that motivation because of the promise of something better to come. There are those who would say, I don't really know if I believe this Peter guy. Wasn't he the one that stuck his foot in his mouth with Jesus all the time? Isn't he the one that's kind of a a weirdo in a lot of ways and stuff? I mean, uh, you know, if, if I don't see it, I don't believe it. And Peter's like, no, listen, I'm telling you, do you want to climb up? Do you want to see this for yourself? It seems like a lot of work. Or, you know what, feeling a little afraid of heights right now. So no. Well, you're just going to not believe it? Well, you know, I, I see what I see. I don't know how else to describe it to you, but this right here is just too real to believe in that. And, th- and then there's another group that I'm very afraid for. It's those that would say, wait a second, now? You're saying you see land right now? Well, doesn't that figure? I just got things comfortable down here. I just got my own little corner of the ship uh, all tidied up. I got the mice and the rats out of my stuff. I, I finally got all those borders protected. I've made a couple friends and you're telling me this is coming to an end? I'm not ready. I'm not ready to give this up. This is starting to get safe for me. My, I'm, I'm over my motion sickness now. I'm just figuring out my stride in all of this. Don't tell me it's over so soon. And there's its own hopelessness that comes with that, its own anchoring to the life at sea instead of the land that the Lord has promised that he's delivering us to. That's why it's important for us to know who we are in Christ. We are holy children, yes. We are bought with the precious blood, yes. But we are exiles. This this floating on the ship was not meant to be permanent. How things go on the ship is not going to be our be-all, end-all. We're going to be faithful on it. We're going to make good relationships on it. We're going to do our diligent tasks on it because God has called us to it. But our hope is not in it. This is why it's so hard for us, but necessary to engage our minds to know these things. David Helm, a, a pastor and, and, uh, and commentator, says this about this passage. If any of us is to do more than simply outlast life's exilic weight, If we are to move beyond melancholy endurance, which is like, eh, well, hey, the ship life, you know, what are you going to do? If you're going to move beyond that and into a positive engagement with the world, in other words, okay, we can make this work. It's temporary, but we can, we can have purpose and relationships here on this thing as we're floating around. He says, let alone enjoyment in it. 
Here's what his warning is to us. We must become a people who know what it is to comprehend a decided hope. You see, something that we flip the switch of our mind and saying, I'm choosing to believe in that. Even if I can't see the land, I will listen to the clarion call of the apostles as they're telling us it's there. That we have to know what it is to comprehend a decided hope in life's eternal future. Therefore, based on that knowledge, what is he saying? That we need to take action in that faith. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, we have been called to some very severe measures in very dark times. But Lord, I am convinced that so often we have made our battle on the outward and we have failed to look on the inward. Lord, continue to transform us by your gospel of grace. Continue to transform us by the knowledge of who we are in you. Thank you, Lord, for maturing Peter. Thank you for moving him from the apostle that we know to be um, hard-headed and, and excited and outspoken and all of those things, those things that made up his character back with his time with Jesus, but also made him to be this very wise, uh, discerning and encouraging voice from our history, Lord, and, and bringing it to our current. Help us to heed these words and to, and to surrender to the fact, Lord, that we don't know how much longer we'll be on this ship. We don't know the speed in which this thing's moving. We don't know as the land gets bigger and closer in view what's asked of us along the way all the time. But Lord, we trust that you will make it clear because you built the ship, you, you maintain the ship, and you've asked us to hold on hope. So, Lord, we thank you for supplying us the grace to be able to do so. We pray, Lord, we'd continue to put it in action. Bless those, Lord, that are, uh, that are responding to your call faithfully. Give them, the encourage, uh, give them the courage to continue to move forward, Lord. And for those that are, that are on the fence or they're not, concerned, they're not uh, sure they'll be able to give up their attachments to this life, Lord, help them to find the ways in which they can begin to make those detachments in honor and glory for you. Grow us all, Lord, in this process to become more mature followers, but children of yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.